Up and down our California coast, marine biologists and ocean enthusiasts everywhere have been celebrating a very special October holiday. Halloween? No! Sharktober! It's a time to really nerd out over sharks, but really it's about all elasma breaks. Ooh, 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 no, 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 what am I saying? I don't just mean sharks and rays, aka the Lasmobranks. I mean all chondrichthians. And as we know, that refers to all cartilaginous fishes like the ghost sharks. Buckle up, because this is going to be a Sharktastic Ocean Science Radio. Yay! Sharks! 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 Okay, so what is Sharktober? Sharktober is the name given to the month of October, obviously, because us all humans observe a much higher rate of shark activity along the American coasts at this time. The term's been used over the past decades by a number of groups and shark scientists, all to bring positive awareness to sharks and the research around them. And this gets done through things like online activities and events. So, like a shark week, but all month long and led by shark scientists? Basically, yeah. In fact, for the last 10 years, I've been putting on trivia events and presentations at the California Academy of Sciences for their Sharktoberfest nightlife. Currently, I'd say the groups in the Bay Area, Southern California, Cape Cod, and Hawaii are probably the only ones aware of the phrase. Well, I mean, at least that I know of. In the creation of this podcast, we reached out to several scientists, surfers, and reporters, many of whom had never heard the term before, and of those that did, no one was entirely sure who coined the term. The earliest mention that we could find was from an article in 2004 mentioning how it was a common term among surfers in Santa Cruz. But we wanted to take a deep dive and explore, is Sharktober really a thing? Do we actually see a jump in activity during October? So we reached out to a number of shark scientists and advocates to find out. One of the people we talked to is David McGuire, the director of Shark Stewards, a group whose mission is to save sharks from overfishing and the shark fin trade and protecting critical marine habitat through education, science, and advocacy. Here is his Sharktober story. I moved to the Bay Area from Santa Barbara in 1992 as a surfer and started surfing the coastline, mostly in Marin, but also Ocean Beach, and became aware that there are white sharks every fall, and that surfers that would call it Sharktober, it was kind of in the vernacular, uh, pretty early on. So we all knew that the sharks came here, but when the science showed in the late aughts that these sharks are actually migrating almost as far as Hawaii, some do migrate to Hawaii, and in return, we decided that we would create this sort of celebration of sharks in the return instead of maligning them. So that became the inception of what Sharktober and the Sharktoberfest events are. Well, for the, the past nine years, we've been partnering with the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary and kind of a public community event. So it's geared more at families and youth. David and Shark Stewards also give tours around the Farallon Islands to show white sharks in their natural habitat and try and encourage a greater understanding and appreciation of sharks. Beyond the local white shark hotspots, we wanted to learn more about the behaviors of white sharks and especially in other locations. So to find out more, we reached out to Chris Fisher, founding chairman and expedition leader of O-Search. Here he is giving a little background of what O-Search is all about. 
I'm Chris Fisher, founding chairman and expedition leader of OSEARCH. So OSEARCH is an enterprise we've put together to allow scientists to collect the life history data on our large apex predators around the world, primarily large great white sharks. In the past, the scientists have really been stuck with only being able to poke tags into sharks that give them a very limited data set, much of which is not really leverageable for management. And that was because our large sharks like white sharks and tiger sharks were so large that they weren't really able to have safe access to them to do multiple studies on every animal to not only track it and see where it's going, but to figure out what it's doing where it's going. And so... We became aware of this issue back around 2007 when many of the scientists were telling us about this shark problem we were having globally down to about 9 to 10% of our large sharks and that they were the balance keepers, the lions of the ocean. And if we couldn't manage them back to the abundance, we couldn't manage the system back to balance and abundance. And it really was going to impact the ability of future generations to be able to eat fish and shellfish if we couldn't solve our large shark life history puzzles and begin to manage them. And so in order to manage them, we had to understand where they're mating, where they're given birth, where the nursery is and how they move through their full migratory ranges in an effort to help them speed their return to recovery while we try to drive down demand in China for shark fin soup. And so where OSEARCH really got involved was in the data creation side. OSEARCH's ship travels around the world, and they provide that ship to scientists in each region of the world for free, capturing large sharks for tagging and research. Altogether, the team does about 15 research projects on every shark they touch. Having worked with tons of sharks all over the world, does Chris celebrate Sharktober? I have not heard of Sharktober before, but I'm down with the idea of it, but it sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. Definitely some fun, sharky times for all. But when it comes to finding the shark party underwater, it's Chris and his team who are collecting enough data to identify some trends in white shark movements. Well, in the northern hemisphere, uh, you know, you're definitely going to see increased activity where white sharks in particular are visible to people on the east coast of the United States. And then you're going to see a lot more activity on the west coast in places like Guadalupe Island and the Farallon because uh, we believe the mature sharks are mating to aggregate in the fall and early winter. And so a lot of the time when we're trying to get into areas to capture and work on white sharks, October is one of the prime months and one of the peak seasons where we believe we see maximum density at mature shark aggregation sites in the northern hemisphere. So Sharktober makes sense because of increased activity in sharks up and down California? There's definitely some proof to that. When we were trying to capture and wanted to be on white sharks, October was a great month to be at Guadalupe, to be capturing big mature animals, and October was a great month to be at the Farallon Islands to try to capture mature animals and up in that region. As far as the Southern California coast, you know, that's a nursery we saw from our work back in those days. Uh, these white sharks, we believe, are mating at Guadalupe and the Farallons in the fall and early winter. The females give birth 18 months later off the coast of Baja on both the Pacific side as well as on the Sea of Cortez side. And then those juvenile white sharks migrate up and down the beaches between Point Conception and Cabo San Lucas for probably the first 15 years of their lives. Thanks, Chris. This is a great segue into our next guest. Most definitely. I had a chance to talk with my professor, 
Dr. David Ebert of the Pacific Shark Research Center all about Sharktober. So welcome to the Ocean Science Radio podcast, Dr. Ebert. When did you first hear of Sharktober? Well, hey, Vicki. Thanks for having me in today. That's great. Sharktober. I'm not really sure what the origins of that term is. I can kind of recall probably 20 years ago in the mid-90s, first time I started hearing that term. And I heard it usually over when I was over in Santa Cruz or Monterey, and it was usually associated with some festival they were having, like on the wharf in Santa Cruz or something. They would talk about Sharktober, and it had to do with the uh, return of the white sharks into this part of the country, part of the California. So are we seeing a big spike in shark activity? I mean, is this something new? Well, the larger white sharks have been doing kind of the same thing where they sort of show up in the summertime, maybe late late spring and summertime, and they're around through the fall. And that kind of coincides with the when a lot of the seals and sea lions are pupping out here in the bay and the elephant seals as well. So the larger ones we're kind of been familiar with. But what's been really fascinating over the last four years has been the appearance of these small ones, these sort of what we call neonates or young of the year. That's been kind of fascinating that they, these things seem to have expanded their area into central California. And according to Dr. Ebert, there's a reason why we are getting more observations of shark activity in the wild. People are paying more attention now. There's things like drones or people up in helicopters. And that's really where we've been, what I've been noticing in the last several years is one of the local uh, uh, helicopter groups, specialized helicopters. The owner, owner there, Chris Gallardi, contacted me and said he was seeing a lot of smaller white sharks, which was unusual because usually we're used to the large ones. So we've been monitoring this for now four years, and they seem to keep coming back every year now, which is pretty cool. Huh. I wonder who we could talk to about smaller white sharks. If only there was someone studying it. You are just in luck, Andrew. Let me introduce you to Elena Tamburin. Hi, my name is Elena. I'm come from Italy, and I'm doing my PhD in Mexico, which is kind of weird for the majority of people, but uh, this is it. I'm right now working in the CCMAR in La Paz. That is a center for the marine science that works just for master degree and a PhD. And, and right, now, right now I'm working with white uh, shark and mako shark, but the baby ones. Aww, Aww baby, baby sharks. sharks. Super cute and interesting. I'm really one of the few persons in the world that works with juveniles. And I really think that we have kind of to focus some of the research in this sense, because we know, uh, for example, for the white shark, we know a lot about the added, but a lot is one of the most uh, studied species in all the world. But for example, for the juveniles, we don't know nothing. And the problem is that adult and juveniles are very different. Like the adult and uh, a kids for the humans. I mean, the movement are different, the diet is different, the habitat uh, selection is different. So they work different and this is kind of important in the management. Also because the white shark in a lot of place when it's baby, is still fish as by catch and the fishermen cannot identify him as a boy catch they just think that they it could be a mako on another species 
Elena has also mentioned some interesting behaviors observed with young white and mako sharks. When you, when you find like a group of uh, is particularly important for the white shark, when you have a group of them and you fish in this group, no, like to catch them and to tag, they probably the next day they disappear. Kind of okay, something is going on that is not cool in this uh, place. So we just move because some of the group was uh, cached and in, in returning the water with a tag, so we don't like it. I don't know how they can get aware of this, but this kind of happens. So some sort of sharky communication? <laughs> that would be awesome, like some sort of secret shark sign language. But the truth is, we just aren't sure at this point. I mean, there's so many variables out there, and maybe one is the fact that a lot of baby sharks hang out in schools. So when you're close around next to each other, you might notice what happens to the other guy. All this is cool to learn, but what about Sharktober? Does Elena see a lot of activity during October? For, for Mako and for white shark, they normally prefer cold water, no? So the thing is that or they move from California, here in Mexico, so normally they come around here like uh, later than October, like November, December, or they born here. In there is a nursery area of both species, and they normally born here. So the they normally start to see more in summer when they have birth. So it's like a different tendency. See more of wild shark, but. Of of the adult one in Guadalupe that is normally they start to arrive in August and they uh, the majority of the population come to Guadalupe normally in October, November, December. So it sounds like that behavior is right on the money but what of the other coasts? Is Sharktober a thing over there? To find out we reached out to Greg Skomel. I'm Greg Skomel. I'm a uh fisheries biologist with the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries. I specialize in sharks. Well, I work very closely with a nonprofit called the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy. My work is deeply focused on, on a number of shark species in New England as well as elsewhere. So we've been doing that for well over 30 years. With such a large-scale study, Greg and his team may have the data to tell us. Is Sharktober a thing on the East Coast? Well, based on our work, uh, October remains a strong month, at least for white sharks off the coast of, of Cape Cod. But uh, certainly the months of August and September are a bit stronger in terms of abundance and numbers of sharks that are here. So it is a thing on the East Coast. Any particular guess as to why we see an uptick in activity for East Coast sharks? I mean, the reason the sharks are, are coming to Cape Cod and stopping by, and some of them actually uh, are, are resident throughout these months, you know, is because it, that is driven by the presence of, of seals, which are the animals that they feed upon. Cape Cod is really unique because it has these large aggregations of seals, and, and as a result, it draws white sharks here in, in good numbers. We've cataloged over 300 individual white sharks in this region, and we continue to count more each season that we're doing our research. 300 individual white sharks? Why does that feel like a lot? Four years ago, Greg and his team started a very specific study to look at the population size of white sharks, not only in their region, but for the entire East Coast range. 
Well, without yet providing hard numbers, I can say with, with great confidence that we're seeing an increasing trend in the number of white sharks. And, uh, and that's related somewhat to the fact that these animals are aggregating in greater numbers close to shore where we can see them. But also, I think it reflects a growing population on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. And, and, and I think the way we need to characterize that, though, is, is think of it in terms of a rebounding population. Okay. I think we can say for sure that Sharktober is definitely a thing. It reflects normal shark activity along U.S. coastlines, and it is most commonly observed for white sharks. So I know that we have talked a lot about white sharks, but I wanted to share something that Elena brought up in our interview. I know that a lot of young students probably want to study the white shark, no? It's like the most cool species that when you ask to a young student, what do you want to do? I want to study the white shark. That is very cool, but I also think that it's important that people get aware that we have some species that we have zero information for this, but zero, zero. I mean, we don't know how many years they can reproduction, uh, they can have reproduction, when they get sexually mature, how many baby they can have. And these kind of stuff are all um, important for the management because in a really ideal world, we can probably have all the species of shark protected, no? Well, you know, this is the exact issue my lab tackles through both research and science communication. In fact, my professor, Dr. Ebert, even coined a term for these lesser known and undiscovered species, lost sharks. What are lost sharks? Let's go back to Dr. Ebert to learn more. Any of those species outside the white shark mostly that people don't recognize. And, and some people may see things like a blue shark or a leopard shark that local people might be familiar with. But most of the species out there, people don't realize there's like 45 species of sharks that occur in California waters. And outside a couple of them, people don't realize those things are there. Why they're important to know is that they're sort of the proverbial canary in the coal mine. Because people pay attention to white sharks, which are a top predator. You have these sort of lower trophic level or sharks that, are, that sort of feed below the level of a white shark that we're not paying attention to. And if there's any issues that occur occurring in the environment, you're more likely to see that amongst those before you see them at the white shark level. In fact, this is a great opportunity to bring back Dr. Britt Finucci. She was a guest last season. Dr. Finucci is an expert on the sharky underworld. My name is Britt Finucci, currently a fishery scientist at Niwa in New Zealand. Uh, my interest has been in deepwater chondrithians, sharks raised in chimeras, primarily on the chimeras, which are also known as ghost sharks. Ooh, ghost sharks. Welcome back to the show, Britt. Thank you. It's nice to be back. Dr. Finucci studies deep-sea chondrichthians, a.k.a., again, the cartilaginous fishes. Her most recent published paper is entitled Aggregations and Associations of Deep-Sea Chondrichthians. Try saying that ten times fast. Some of her previous work has looked into reproduction biology of chimeras. Which we covered in one of our Ocean Lovin' episodes two years ago. Dr. Finucci's work is a big deal. Because unlike the more accessible great white sharks roaming near the surface, we don't have much access to the deep sea and therefore not many observations of ghost sharks. 
so I don't think there's much of a Sharktober party for them. Hashtag Go Sharks Need Love too. But so in, in the deep sea species, which I usually look at, even less is known about movement and migration patterns. So to my knowledge, that hasn't been looked at. There haven't really been any correlation. We do see deep sea sharks engage in vertical migrations. So they're moving up and down the water column. But these tend to be a more regular occurrence, possibly you know, every day that they're following their prey items up and down. But there's very limited information on that. And any sort of seasonal movement in deep water sharks is um, very, very poorly known. In other words, just like every other scientist we spoke to, there is a deep need to study these species in more depth. Was that a deep sea shark pun? Shush! Okay, yes! But seriously, one of the things that we really hope comes clear through this podcast is that the shark world is much, much more than just great white sharks. So every year we're we're able to add a little bit more about what we know about these guys. You know, there are 500 species of true sharks. And when you include the rays and chimeras, there's about 1,200 species. You know, so just remember that it's not just white shark and whale sharks. There's a massive diversity of species out there. And I um, recommend that everyone spend a little more time learning about the lesser known ones. Because we do need people working on, on those ones as well, not the, just the white sharks. Go for the little guys. And while there are huge amounts of diversity in sharks... All chimeras share one interesting defense mechanism. Cue the brutal nature story. One thing that every chimera has is a very long dorsal fin spine. These are uh, mildly poisonous. I've stabbed myself multiple times with them. Don't recommend doing so. But there is uh, one thing I did find out a couple years ago. There was a very... um, obscure little paper that was published off of a study done in California, actually, I believe, that looked at about a dozen deaths of sea lions. They found that these animals actually died from lacerations from the, the dorsal fin spines of these chimeras. So they had been trying to prey on the animals and, you know, that, that backfired and didn't work out for the uh, the poor animals in the, in the end on either case. So they would have tried to ingest the, the spines and the spines caused considerable damage as they were moving through the seal's digestive system. Brutal! Brick, tell us more about ghost sharks. Ghost sharks are pretty awesome. I mean, they look nothing like your typical shark. They do look like a mash of a few different animals kind of put together. They've got, instead of teeth, like typical shark teeth, they've got tooth plates, such similar appearance to, like, say, a rodent. They've got big, big eyes. They've got beautiful, large pectoral fins. And they're you know, swimming in the water column. Some people have said it, described it as kind of like a butterfly movement. I believe the term for one of the species in Brazil is actually translates to uh, the butterfly fish. And then they've got this long, long tail that tapers off, which kind of looks more like, oh, I don't know, say a snake. So it's, it is, they are a mashup of, of different species. So I think they're quite unique looking. Ghost sharks are incredibly weird and awesome looking. I recommend that immediately after listening to this episode and giving us an awesome review on iTunes, you check out pictures of them online. And I second that. Anyways, my professor, Dr. Ebert, he is really the ghost shark fanatic. Cool. That's like my favorite topic. And for those that don't know, like October 30th is International Ghost Shark Day. Cool. What is Ghost Shark Day? 
So that'll be coming out. That kind of coincides with Halloween and Go Sharks being spooky. So that's a good way to promote some awareness for the Chimeras, the Go Shark, which tend to be forgotten among all the rest of their shark and ray relatives. So yeah, I do I do what I can to, to get people more interested in, in the Chimeras. I do believe there are some activities planned through colleagues at the Pacific Shark Research Center. So stay tuned. Check out their Facebook page, their Twitter account. I do believe they have some surprises lined up to celebrate Go Sharks and to spread some more information about them. And um, I'm kind of proud of the fact that here at, at, at the Moss Landing Marine Laboratories at our Pacific Shark Research Center, we've been responsible for discovering and naming 20% of all the known species in that group. And that's all occurred over the last 15 years. So it's kind of a cool thing, I think. Awesome. That is a huge accomplishment. I know what I'm going to be doing October 30th. Definitely a new tradition. I'm already planning for next year. Now, okay, T-Motion, we have 365 days to plan. Let's use every October as an opportunity to learn more about sharks and their cousins. And tell your friends. And I want to thank everybody for joining and listening in. And we will see you next time on Ocean Ocean Science Science Radio. Radio. This was an epic episode. Most definitely, Andrew. We really gave listeners the mega lowdown. Zing! Oh, dear Lord, so many puns.